0: The Bible says in First John 4:19, "We love him because he first loved us." There are some ancient copies of the Bible that have been discovered as of late that do not include the hymn in First John 4:19. And certain English versions are reflective of these more recent findings. The New American Standard Bible, for example, simply reads, We love because he first loved us. There are even some versions like the New Living Translation that have gone ahead to present kind of an alternate view to this scripture altogether. We love Each other, it inserts, because he first loved us. I will admit that the insertion certainly does fit a major theme in John's first letter, which is that we are to love one another just as God has loved us. And we see that in 1 John 4, verse 11. But you know, regardless of how we might read the exactness, or what the exactness of this passage is, one thing is certain. We love. We love God. We love one another. We love And the scripture is clear about that. We even love our enemies. We love those who hate us, those who speak against us, those who do terrible things to us. We love. And a second thing also becomes clear from the passage, regardless of how you might render it. And that is the reason we love. We love Scripture says, because he first loved us. Just like a parent. They loved us before we ever got to know them or we decided to love them. They first loved us. And so it is with our creator, our heavenly father above. He first loved us. And therefore we imitate him. And we love. And this is the direction I want to go this morning. Because as we think about the greatest commandment this month, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, I want to ask the question, why? Why ought we to love? Especially the Lord our God and i like to suggest to you two main reasons as i've given a little thought to this now why we ought to love the lord our god the first main reason i believe is because of who he is i'm talking about god's identity I'm talking about God's character. I'm talking about the kind of question that Jesus himself asks when he asks to Peter, who do men say that I am? Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Or even when Moses says to God upon that commission that he's going to be sent out on, what do I say to you? Or what do I say to the Israelites when they ask, who are you? Or what is your name? I believe it's the great I am who I am. That as men begin to discover who he is, they are drawn to him. I am fill in the blank. And that blank draws us in further and further to know and to love. The Lord our God. I want you to consider for a moment, and perhaps you'll hold in your Bible there in 1 John 4, verse 19, and you'll notice with me the inspired words of a man who is after God's own heart, scripture says. An inspired psalm that he penned in Psalm 18 that starts with those very important words that we're thinking about this month. I will love you, O Lord. But I want you to listen very closely what proceeds immediately after. As David lets those words depart from his mouth, I love you, Lord. Notice what he says next. I love you, Lord, my Strength. That's identity. That's character. That is, I am who I am to David. Who is the Lord to you, O David? Who is that Lord that you love? Oh, He is my strength, David says. And David doesn't stop there. Who is the Lord to you, David? A mighty fortress, verse 2. Who is the Lord to you, David? Savior. Who is the Lord to you, David? A mountain is the way one version reads in verse 2. Who is the Lord to you, David? A shield and a high tower. A place of refuge is the idea there. He's that one I can go to in times of trouble. He's my high tower. He's the mighty fortress. Do you ever stop to think about who God is in your life? If you do, I think it will draw you Closer and closer to loving the Lord your God. And I believe you will love him more. God is comfort. 2 Corinthians one three. God is compassion. Psalm 86 and verse 15. God is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 24. Who is God? God is faithful. Glorious. Psalm 24 and verse 7. God is good. Mark 10, verse 18. God is mercy. Ephesians 2 and verse 4 through 8. God is grace. John 1, 16 through 17. God is great. Jeremiah 10 and verse 6. God is creator. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, God is Father, Acts 17, 24-28. God is righteous, Psalm 119, 137. God is eternal, Isaiah 40, verse 28. God is truth, Psalm 31, verse 5. God is unchangeable, Hebrews 1, verse 12. God is one of a kind, Isaiah forty-five, verses five through six. God is wise. Romans 16, verse 27. God is zealous. Second Kings 19, 31. And he is jealous. Exodus 20 and verse 5. God is slow to anger. Hallelujah. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 3. And of all God's identity traits, the most dearly Loved undoubtedly is first John four sixteen. God is love. When you stop and think about all of those traits about God and who he is, don't you love him all the more? You know there's only one identity trait of God that seems to bother people today, and I didn't mention it. But here it is in Psalm seventy-five and verse seven. The Bible says this about God and who He is. God is judge. He puts one down and He exalts another. And you know, that seems to be the only identity trait about God that bothers people today. He's the one that puts down. And in the one that He puts down, God is an aroma of death. Someone that they would have nothing to do with. But even in those moments, there's another attribute about God that's very important to remember and I think it's even one that that one who is cast down might very well appreciate about God at least until maybe the sword that double-edged sword is pointed in their direction and that of course is that God is just God is holy and God is a God of vengeance and we love that about God we appreciate that about God but only until that double-edged sword is pointed your direction or mine. Scripture says that God is a just judge and he is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7 and verse 11. The prophet himself says of God, you are pure eyes than to behold and you cannot look on wickedness. Habakkuk 1 and verse 13. God is so pure that he can't do anything else but judge And cast away evil because of who he is. How great he is and how good and how holy he is. There's a sense in which God can do nothing about it. Because to do something about it, to ignore it or overlook it would ignore, it would contradict his very own nature, who he is. It would be as if to deny his own name and who he is. But when we stand Aligned with God's righteous judgments. There is nothing about God that we do not love or should not love. And even in those times, maybe where we find ourselves judged. We can still find a place, a way to love him as we ought to. Knowing that his judgments are righteous and true. Did you know that divine anger is always Always, always, in the Word of God, always directed it toward one place. And that place is sin. Rebellion, stubbornness, wickedness. It's the only place you will ever find that anger and that wrath directed toward sin. And as one man said, It is always pointed toward that which ultimately threatens to thwart his upright and his good purposes for man. So that even in his times of judgment and justice, he's still looking out for the benefit and the goodness of mankind. And that's what you see in Psalm 18, by the way. David reveals this truth. You notice in verses 4 through 6, The prophet says the pangs of death surrounded me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. Look at what sin is doing to him. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me in my distress. You see, there's only one thing we can do in rebellion in the midst of wickedness. There's only one thing the righteous can do. They can only call upon the righteous God who they fully expect and hope will help them in these times of trouble. And the psalmist says, I cried out to my God in this time of distress. He heard my voice because that's what a righteous God does from his temple. And my cry came before him even to his ears, the psalmist says. And then notice in verses 7 through 12, the psalmist says, then the earth shook. And it trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken. Why? Because he was angry, Scripture says. Smoke went up from his nostrils. And devouring fire from his mouth, coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens. He came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub. He flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters. Thick clouds of the skies from the brightness before him his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. And so the psalmist says this great God, he came down with great judgment in my what? In my distress because of what sin and wickedness was doing to me. And so we read these words in verse 25 through 27. With the merciful you, God, will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, oh, God says, or the psalmist says, to God, you will show yourself shrewd. In other words, he will deal with it. And he will deal with it wisely. For you will save the humble people, but you will bring down the haughty looks. And it reminds us of this very important truth that Jesus even taught us in John 3, verses 20-21. through When Jesus himself said, everyone practicing evil hates the light. He does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth, he comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And so in other words, the righteous, they love God. They love his righteous judgments because they're right, they're true. And they want to do what is right, even though all have sinned. But the righteous man still wants to do what is right. Oh, but to the wicked man, yes, God shows himself a judge. And so I think, when I think about why we ought to love God, we ought to love him because of how great and how wonderful he is. And it's only God's righteousness And holy judgments against sin. And only the wicked man, ultimately, who finds offense to God. Because he wants to do something altogether different. But when sin is removed, then a great God is clearly seen. One that we only and should only want to love. I love how one man said it this way. He said, all hell, if they could view God in his absolute existence without any relation to themselves. In other words, without their own sinful desires, without all their fleshly and carnal wants, would heartily approve of his character. Amen? Oh, I believe they would. This man goes on, he says, the reason why wicked men and devils hate God is because they see, them, they see him in relation to themselves. In other words... They see a righteous and holy God who is opposed to their wicked and sinful deeds. And that's the only reason they hate God, because of his justice upon wickedness. But if all else were removed, they would undoubtedly love him with all their heart and soul. And so, why do we love God? Because of who he is. And if we are willing to see ourselves, or maybe less of ourselves and more of him in ourselves, Then we would love him so much the more. But there is a second reason also, before we close this morning, why I think we ought to love God. And it's because not only of who he is, but also because of what he does. And you could almost say the second reason is like the first, just like the greatest commandment's. What he does is who he is. And so we love him all the more. But I want us to consider specifically what he does. What does God do that makes us love him so much? Well, there's another psalm from David that deserves our attention. And it's found in Psalm 116 this time. And it starts out with really identical words. Just as it did in Psalm 18. I love the Lord. Likewise here once again. David says in Psalm 116 again, he says, I love the Lord. But why, David? Why do you love him this time? It's because of what he has done. Notice. He says, I love the Lord. Why? Because he has heard. He has heard my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. You see, this time it isn't just about who God was to David my strength, my fortress, my refuge. But this time it was also about what God had done for David. I love the Lord. Why, David? Because he has listened to my words. He has listened to my prayers. He's brought his ear low, way, way, way down to where I am. He stretched it out, he bent it down, and he opened up a speakerphone. He put one of them iPhones up to my ear, and he listened to me. In all my troubles and all of my sorrows, and he tells us very clearly in verse 6 that when he did so, he saved me. He preserved. Yes, I was low. But he preserved and he kept me. And then he spoke to me, verse 7. He spoke to my soul and he said, return to your rest, O my soul, be still, be comforted. The Lord has dealt, dealt bountifully with you. Bountifully. What a beautiful word to summarize the Lord's dealings with man. You know, the word picture here that is presented in the original language, bountifully, bountifully. Presents a weaned child. You see it in other scriptures. Psalm 68. Psalm 131. Where it illustrates a child who's been weaned from their mother. They're fully satisfied. They've been cared for. And they're time of vulnerability, dependence, just like a mother. They've been taken care of right up until that time so that they can now begin to feed themselves and begin in one sense to take care of themselves. They've been fully satisfied and they've not lacked. And so it is with our God. Scripture tells us that He is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. Psalm 68, verse 5. He watches over the strangers, even those who do not know him. Psalm 146. God is caring for them. He's watching over for their needs. Psalm 10, verse 18 tells us he seeks justice for the oppressed so that the oppressed man is oppressed no more. He's looking looking out for the little guy, so to speak. He's watching out for him. He's taking care of him. You know, there are a lot of things that happen over the years in the life of a man that can cause him to question God. I think about the life of a little girl named Jenny Rojas. She was only three years old, and she was moved from one abusive home only to find herself in another abusive home. She was forced to sleep in a wooden box. She was often hung in a closet by her hands. She was burnt on her cheeks by a blow dryer. She was held under hot water until most of her hair fell out. And in her final moments of life, she was submerged in boiling water. It was a terrible thing. She was allowed to slowly die, even as her skin began to peel away. I have to admit to you that in times like this, I don't know why God permits certain liberties, certain boundaries to stretch as far as they do. But you know, when I read stories like that and I hear about things like that, it's in times like this that I'm reminded of a man named Job. And Job had his own skin issues, his own problems. The Bible talks about such painful boils upon his skin that it caused him to scrape it off with a broken piece of pottery. And there he is just scraping away at his body. And upon all these things, having lost his children and all of his property. Imagine that scene. And the Bible says, just like Jenny Rojas, he was a blameless man, innocent. He was not guilty. He did not deserve that, just any more than a little child in an abusive home. But what we find in that historic event is that there are often multiple forces at play in this world, aren't there? There's God. There's Satan. There's man. Sometimes on the ball field, there's just pure chance. Things can happen by coincidence. And you could say, well, it's within God's reach to control every move, isn't it? Yes. But we know the obvious answer to that. Where then would be free will? And above all things, where would be love? Because isn't that what love is? A choice? A free will decision we make. God is active, He's present. We know that. And the book of Job teaches us this that just when we think God's justice isn't active, it's not moving, it's doing nothing, boom, there it is. He appears on the scene, full force, with His plan. And it unravels, it unfolds, and it ultimately takes control. And so we read in places like James and we look back and we say, Oh, there was God teaching a lesson about perseverance. Or maybe like Jenny Rojas, I don't understand it all. But maybe there was a moment where God said, That's why I need good men and women who will do what is good. And that's what happens when good men and good women don't do anything. Don't stand up and do what is right. I don't understand it all, but I do know God has a plan. And you can ask the men of great, of old, men like Abraham, who received from God a child 25 years waiting. And then suddenly, boom, there it was. God's promise fulfilled. Sarah conceives in her old age. She begets Isaac. Or you ask those children of Israel, 400 years of slavery, and then boom, there he is. There's God on the scene. He has a plan. And it's been unfolding all this time. I would encourage you to read another psalm, Psalm 64, when you have time and convenience in reading your Bible but the end of that psalm, I just want to mention it. It says in Psalm 64, the last verse, the righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. And I think that is such a comforting, comforting verse that all of us can think about in times of sorrow, in trouble, and in our worst. And most unimaginable moments where we simply do not understand what's going on or the trouble that we're enduring. As we conclude, we can't let pass one other thing that I think is very plainly known to us in the Bible. We ought to love God because he sent his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3.16. John 3.17, equally important, God did not send his son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so 1 John 4.10 tells us this, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. I want you to just imagine hearing those words before we close this morning, the words that were spoken to Abraham where God said to him, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. Take him. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. I mentioned a moment ago that Abraham waited 25 years for this son that God promised to give him And you can imagine he probably was waiting long before that. And now he had to take this one son of his whom he loved and he had to drive a stake right through his heart. But Abraham didn't have to go through with it. Because I believe God was testing him so that we might realize in times like this the very thing that God himself did do. And how much he loved us. That he took his only son. And he did. According to scripture. Deliver him to lawless hands to be crucified. Acts 2 and verse 23. God did put his own son to death scripture says. And he did it for you. So that your sins might be washed away. And you might have eternal life. And you might rise up with his son to live forevermore. Psalm 31 verse 23. Oh, love the Lord, all you saints. And if Jesus isn't enough reason to love him, my friend, I can tell you, I do not know what more you need or would want. God so loved the world that he gave his only son.